You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. What is the thread that connects a story to a storyteller? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, the author of Takes One to Know One, Susan Isaac stops by. But first, John Thiessen of the John Thiessen Children's Foundation joins the conversation. And John, welcome. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for having me. So this is a little bit of a departure for me, but I believe everybody has a story to tell and everybody makes a contribution to the, the chapter in the book of life. So let's talk about your story from the beginning because it had a dramatic turn later on in your life. So let's kind of look back first. You had a typical life growing up as a kid in a suburban Long Island. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I, I was the youngest of five brothers, grew up in Wantor, uh, and always was into sports, always athletic. Uh, my family was always, you know, st- Decent students and uh, going into my senior year into Levittown schools at MacArthur High School. I actually was playing football for my football team. And that September of 88, I started getting really bad headaches and got diagnosed with a brain tumor on September 28th of 1988. And how much of a shock was that? How old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 17 years old. And back then in the 80s, I, I remember one girl that I grew up with that had leukemia, but it wasn't like it is now. And it was, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I had, I had, I would, they thought at the time I, all the headaches I had been having were from allergies and, you know, general right. practice doctors right. just blowing everything off. And I, back then I went to the, uh, the Zwanga Passiri on, on Old Country Road. And, and I remember having a CAT scan. And by the time I got home, I, I had gotten a call that I had a brain tumor. And what was your what was your initial reaction? But how about your family? So I was I got home and I, I went outside for a little bit and I come back in and my mom's sitting there with my aunt who had also gone to the CAT scan with us and this sitting there crying at the table and I I thought within the hour that I had seen them I thought someone passed I had no idea it was about my results and I said what's the matter and my mom said John it's not good news she goes the doctor just called you have a brain tumor you have a large mass. And I ran over to her and I started crying right away. I thought, especially back in the 80s, at 17 years old, I think a brain tumor in my life was over. And I slammed my hand on the table and I said, how long, how much longer do I have to live? And I was just crying and just devastated. So take us now, you've been diagnosed. What happened? What was the next step in terms of your personal journey? So in a few months, I, you know, I I continued to go to school. I wanted to continue to be a regular kid. So I, I, um, I continued to go to school and then the headaches got so bad. I went out on home tutoring and I, uh, started to lose sight in my left eye. My peripheral vision was terrible. So in December 8th of 1988, I was due to have my surgery the next day on December 9th. And I'm walking up to uh, Schneider's Children's Hospital, which is now Cohen's. And I was telling my mom, I remember walking up with my mom, being like, Mom, I'm 17 years old. I don't want to be with the kids. I'm going to be embarrassed. They're going to give me crayons and coloring books. I mean, I'm a 17-year-old macho teenager. <laughs> and so I go in, and that's exactly what they did. They gave me a little welcome bag with crayons and a coloring book. And they bring me up onto the fourth floor, which at that time was – it is now. It's back to it now. But at that time was the oncology floor. And I was actually supposed to be on a surgical floor because I was having brain surgery. But there was no room on that, so they put me on the oncology floor and – I just remember getting off the elevator and my whole life, my whole perspective of life just changed from that point on because I just saw kids running the hallway and, and uh, no hair and IV poles. And I had no idea this was going on. I mean, I had no idea. And 
I just, I, I was, I went to my room. I remember it was room 410 and, and I'm talking to the doctor and the nurses about my surgery the next day and in walked this little girl. And she was around what I thought would be, you know, seven, eight years old. And she introduced herself. She said, hi, I'm Tasha. Welcome to Med 4. And I, I couldn't believe it. I said, and then she walked out and she's in her pajamas and she's roaming the halls by herself. And I, I said, that's strange. And, and the doctors and nurses continue their way. And, and later they had told me, a nurse told me, she goes, oh, it's Tasha. They, they actually call her Tish Tosh. And she's in and out of the hospital for weeks at a time. And unfortunately, there would be no family ever visiting her. So as the days went on, she, she became very friendly with my family. The day I was having surgery, I had surgery. It was 10 hours long back then. And, and Tasha was hanging out by my own side. When's John coming back? When's John coming back? I mean, picture this on, on the fourth floor. There were 30 plus other rooms on that floor. And right. she took to my room. And she just was constantly by my side. I have a picture hanging up in my office where I'm sleeping. And Tasha's sitting on my bed trying to wake me up. And so they were having a holiday party. It was during Christmas and Hanukkah and during the holidays. And Santa Claus was going to be there for the kids. And they were going to get to leave that floor. It was only specifically for that floor. Go down and spend time with Santa Claus. And her family had promised that they would come and, and spend the day with her, which was a rarity. And she was really excited. But the morning of the party, she came in and she was crying. And I remember the doctors and nurse, they woke her up. They wanted to make it special for her. They actually did a hair and stuff. And she came in and she was crying. I remember, again, I'm in and out of it. I had 10-hour brain surgery. So I just, I remember the hearing this little girl cry. And, and she said, my family's not coming. They can't come. And, and I just couldn't believe it. Here I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe this. So I said, Tasha, don't worry. And at this point, you could hear all the other kids going down with their families. Right. And little Tasha has nobody to go down with. Once again, she's left stranded. So my mom said, Tasha, I'll take you down. And she goes, well, when is John coming? And she goes, and my mom said, John's not out of bed. And, you know, I wasn't planning on going down anyway. I'm 17 years old. I couldn't, I just had 10 hour brain surgery. I couldn't be around screaming kids. And um, so my mom took her down and she was really upset that I couldn't get out of bed and, and spend time down there. But the story is my mom, my mom told me that when she it was her time to go up to Santa Claus, she took a hand and Santa had a big teddy bear for her. <laughs> And when she went to, when Santa went to give it to Tasha, Tasha said, I don't want it for me. I want it for my friend upstairs who's sick in bed. And that's what she did. She, she gave up her gift, which they ended up giving her one anyway. And she, she came upstairs and she threw it on me while I was sleeping. And I had no idea what had happened, but my mom told me what had happened and I couldn't believe it. I left the hospital some days later and I said, I'm going to come back to help our kids like this during the holidays. And that is a very dramatic story. Now, you and I have known each other for many years you were very well known in the Long Island running community. You were a very, very good athlete and a very good runner. And I remember in the early days, and we'll talk about the John Thiessen Children's Foundation, but in the early days, this was one of the highlights of the holiday season for myself and my family. We used to go to your parents' house, and that's where everybody dropped off all the toys. And that was the highlight. Go to John Thiessen's parents' house and donate something. And it may have been something very small, but for everybody that went there to drop off toys, it was quite significant. So how did that all come together in the early days of, of your mission? Yeah, that's, that's how it all started, Larry. In, in 1992, I actually, uh, my friend and I and my family, I, I ended up using a typewriter, believe it or not, to type up a letter, a short, brief letter, talking a little bit about my experience with Tasha and asking the neighbors to, I said, I started off, dear neighbor. And I, you know, it was a brief two-paragraph letter, and I said, can you please donate a new toy? And I 
for, and I, I would actually, in today's world, you have, you have the radio, you have social media, right. you have, right. I mean, to pass a word, it's pretty, to me, it's simple. I had to walk from neighborhood to neighborhood to house to house and roll up and put them around the mailbox. And uh, it started as the toy drive. And I thought during the holidays, and I, I remember during the, during a month of December in 1992, we collected and distributed 800 toys. And I thought that was incredible. This is when toy drives were not around besides Marine Toys for Tots, yeah, was, which I didn't even know about it back was, then. It was you and them, and they had a much bigger organization to of do course. that. Of it, course. It wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. And uh, so it started to steamroll, and I, I realized, you know, what I needed to do is, is to— there's more than just toys. You know, these families are, are losing their houses when the kids get sick. There's kids walking around without jackets. There are, you know, so many things going on in this world that I wanted to, to help and, and change, and, and that's what we've been doing. So well, I, I, could, I forget that I've ever asked you. Do you know what happened to Tasha? You know, I unfortunately over the years I I've never found out what happened to Tasha, and and it's been publicized. And I have a picture of her that I promote all the time. It's on my website. It's it's through social media. I was actually on a Steve Harvey show. He showed it, and uh, I never found out. Tasha Tasha left the hospital prior to me, and at that point in my life, I was I couldn't believe. I was more about that I couldn't believe that this girl was in the hospital by herself than, than actually, you know, staying friends with her. But as the years passed, I said, you know, this is the reason why I started the foundation. It's this girl holding the teddy bear. It's still my logo. And right. I, I, I never found out what happened to Tasha. Never did. I've tried to find her. And I've, I know that I, that I met this girl, Tasha, on the fourth floor on December 8th of 1988 at Schneider's Children's Hospital. I don't have a last name. Now, how much cooperation over the years have you gotten from the media? Because those contacts are really, really important. I mean, you can knock on doors, you can write letters, but to expand on what you want to do initially and even today, what role does the media play? Newspapers, print journalism, electronic journalism, uh, podcasts. How does that help your mission? Oh, it's it's incredible. I mean, my my foundation, the mission is to help sick and underprivileged children in any capacity across Long Island. So, from from radio to TV to Newsday to News Twelve to all the local stations to every, it's in, I mean, it's a year round organization now. I mean, I think last year we gave out just under two million dollars in donations, and I still have kept it a grassroots organization. Twenty eight years in, I've still kept it a grassroots organization. So I do a lot through social media, and and I I actually promote my Myself as an individual, because I think that's why, you know, the average person, you know, responds to me because they, you know, they, they can see a face to the cause. Right. And I, I get that all the time. So when you say you get that all the time, you're well known for your children's foundation. Do you have other people coming to you, one, to ask you how to set up their own foundations? And two, do you get the request, John, please come speak to my group. John, please put me in touch with Newsday. John, please put me in touch with Mike Francesa. Do you get all those requests? Absolutely. But I, uh, you know, I tell them, I say, I help them out as much as I can. And I, I run events. I also, besides what I've done, besides the events that my foundation does throughout the year, in the last six years, I've raised over $7 million for NYPD offices, FDMY offices, Nassau County Police, Suffolk County Police, correctional offices, or kids with cancer. So they come to me, they don't know how to run an event, they don't know what to do. I headline the whole thing and I, I do live auctions. I, I go from A to B. And that's been a, a completely different life for me. And uh, so I get I get people that want to start up nonprofits like I did right. years ago. Right. And when I wanted to start my nonprofit in 92, I remember 
calling up. It was Bloomberg in the city. It was the Bloomberg law firm, and and they wanted five thousand dollars to to start up my my organization. And that's that's actually what the average the average rate is. But I so what I do is I just guide them along the way, and I end up doing it for free for them. It's just it's you know everyone says do you get paid for this? Do you get paid for that? I mean, you run all the events. They should be paying you. They should be you know what this. I am so blessed to be doing. What I do, I was I was working as a pharmaceutical rep for years, and I was making well over a hundred thousand dollars on a on a bad year. And I in two thousand three, I got my first grant to do this foundation full time, and I've never looked back. and And I just I'm honored and and blessed to be able to do this every day. So I think about a story I saw many years ago about a gentleman down in the D.C. area that worked with the homeless, and I think, if I'm correct, he ended up taking his own life. And the reason why dealing with the homeless day after day, week after week, year after year, was so draining, he kind of lost himself. Because he did it for the right reasons, but it just took away whatever kept him going. And I understand that mindset. So you have to deal with a lot. I know you've had some health concerns. We can talk about that. You've dealt with a lot personally. So how do you keep going, that passion, that motivation going, when you're dealing with the outside world and year after year after year, you have a lot of pressure to keep this going. Well, Larry, that's a, that's a good point. And, uh, and, you know, after my surgery, I was seeing therapists for years because I had post-traumatic stress syndrome, like, like, a, like a veteran on the, on the front lines. It was brutal for me. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. One, seeing the children that were sick and, and two, Having to having to deal with the ten hour brain surgery and it was incredible. A lot of people don't know it, but during my brain surgery, I actually had an out of body experience. I left my body, and at that time, I couldn't. You know, I I, I remember during the surgery, I was in a bright light. I wasn't near death either. Right. And the, the neurologist, the neurosurgeon, says this happens sometimes. But I actually could see myself from the side, and I was like in a bright light. And all I saw was the doctor and the nurse because I had complications about three and a half hours into the surgery, and two days after. When I was finally to it, my mom, I told her, I said, I couldn't believe this happened. She goes, what do you mean? How'd you, how'd you know that? I said, mom, I saw the whole thing. So I had to deal with that. I mean, I couldn't understand that. So going with, going with the post-traumatic that I have, I mean, I, 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 that hospital smell, that, that smell, I couldn't t- get out of me. And, and it was so hard for me to even pass a hospital and knowing that kids were sick in the hospital. And now with the foundation, I mean, these kids that I deal with, these, you know, a, a, a newborn, a six-month-old has cancer and this and that. And then having children of my own, it's so hard. So it is, it weighs on me so hard. And I, I just have to, I kind of have to build up a wall and, you know, know that if I'm able, if I'm going to continue this for years and years and years, I have to stay strong and I have to realize that this is part of, of what my mission is. So I, I, I get on top of that. And most people don't know this, Larry, and I don't really, I started talking about this maybe a couple of years ago with my close friends. But when I was 20, 21 years old, at that point, I really didn't have much going on with my life. And okay. my friends had been in away at college and, and starting jobs. And I, I was still going through, I had six uh, surgeries and the radiation. I was still sleeping all day from it. I wasn't working. I actually, my goal in life was to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. I went to Kmart <laughs> and I, I hope I'm going to tell you this story. And I don't know if you ever heard of it. And it just goes to show you that, that you can never give up hope. So I drove to the Kmart in Levittown. I bought a shotgun. I rented a car. Wow. And my goal was to go and, and kill myself up near Cooperstown. I was, so I drove up. I, I went to Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. I got there too late. It was closed. True story. I got there too late. It was closed. I watched a little league game on the field. 
And I went to a parking lot and my goal was to kill myself. I ended up falling asleep. I woke up the next morning and realized that's not the way to go. I drove home and the girl that I bought it from at that store, I went to school with. I remember waiting there for about an hour and a half, filling out the paperwork. I rented this car, bought a shotgun, had it in my trunk, drove home the next day and returned it. Never took it out of the packaging. And um, I was there, It was that was as close as I got. That was as close as I got. Cause I didn't think I was, I had anything in front of me. I thought my life was, was just done. I was going nowhere. Um, my guest is John Thiessen, who organized and started the John Thiessen's Children's Foundation. And I'm gonna throw a name out there because each of us have something that keeps us going. And I've been honored to work with amputee athletes. And that meant an awful lot to me. The one person that we have in common that we admire is Terry Fox. So for people who don't know the Terry Fox story, because you have a, do you have a, is Adidas running shoes, I think, in I your do. office? Yes. Right. So share that story, because every time I go to sit down, when I go to sit down in John's office and he's not busy, which is rare, um, it's a, it's like going, he talks about the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. You go into his office and if you're a collector and the stuff that he has is unbelievable, but he has something from Terry Fox. But tell us the Terry Fox story because both of us, um, it's an, it's central to, I think, to what we believe in, in terms of the human spirit. It is. Terry Fox was a Canadian and back in 1980 was diagnosed with bone cancer. And I knew nothing about Terry Fox until my brother Kenny was watching a Terry Fox story with Robert Duval back in back when I was going through my issues and he woke me up at like two o'clock in the morning crying. He goes, John, you remind me so much of Terry Fox and such and such. And I took a liking to Terry Fox. So Terry Fox was diagnosed with bone cancer. He was a Canadian, 18 years old, lost his leg and said, I want to fight cancer. I want to raise money for cancer research. And on his own, he started running each day with a prosthetic leg. Back then, they were like wooden oh, legs. They were terrible then. Terrible. He wrote to Adidas and he told Adidas what his plan was to run a marathon a day, run across Canada to raise money for cancer research. He reached out to the American Cancer Society. The movie's incredible. Adidas sent them all these sneakers. So him and his best friend, Doug, they started this journey and it started in Newfoundland and, and every day was running a marathon a day. And at the start, people in Canada didn't realize who he was and became like an icon. I mean, and Terry Fox, unfortunately, got to Thunder Bay, Canada, which was like three quarters of a way, ran a marathon away. I think he, I think he ran over 3,500 miles and ended up, the cancer ended up coming back and, and he ended up passing. But I, I watched that movie so many times and, and he's the he's the one person, that if, if anybody asks like who I look up to, Terry Fox was the one person that I look up to. So it's just an incredible, he inspired me. And back in 1999, uh, I ended up doing, I wanted to, I wanted to, I was, I was into marathons. I started that right. after I was running. So in 1999, I actually ended up running from Belmore to Montauk in 29 hours, which was 103 miles. And I knew you, you were an ultra marathon runner and, and you used to do that, you know, backwards. And, uh, and so I wanted to do that to kind of, to kind of remember and, and, you know, memorize Terry, Terry that way. And, uh, I just, so Adidas some, some years back, I think it was in 2007 or 2005, they released 6,500 pairs of the same sneaker right. that Terry Fox has. And on the sole, it's the, it's the map that he took. And I ended up buying about six pairs. So also in your private collection, what comes out, what stands out, what's something you would never, ever put on eBay or give away? Uh, that's a good question. I would never give away the, 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 obviously the original typed letter that I have 
that I, that are handwritten. I have that next to the Tasha picture. I don't. I don't really know. I'm not really. I'm not really. I don't really know. It's not. It's. I would never give a Terry Fox thing away. I would never. You know, I would never do that. I've over the years. I've like I said, I was on the Steve Harvey show. It's pretty cool. He gave me a Harvey's Hero jacket. I was inducted into the Levittown Public School Hall of Fame. I was the first one inducted after 75 years. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't give away any of my marathon medals or any like that. Not that anybody would want them, but but I, w- I don't know what I would. I don't know. It's a good question. All right. Well, you can have come back in the future after you think about that question. That's fine. I, you have an open invitation anytime. Okay. Good. <laughs> so across the years, you come across a lot of very well-known people, famous people. Have helped out with your gala. And we'll talk about that gala, by the way. The other person we have in common is is Mick Foley. Do you have a good Mick Foley story? Mick Foley's the best. So I do have a good Mick Foley story. So Mick Foley, I have this holiday gala at Mulcahy's every holiday season. I have celebrities and athletes there, and usually I have to pay them some money to come, but it brings attendance in so it's good so Mick Foley I I said I would do an agent I said I would love to get Mick Foley so Mick Foley ends up uh showing up at the gal this is about 10 years ago and he had no idea what foundation he was coming for his fee was $1,500 okay so he had no idea what his what his fee what he was coming for he walks in the door he sees my name he realizes that it's my foundation he goes John when I met him he goes John he goes I had no idea until I walked in and he goes I call my wife before I see you and I told him what I told her what I was here for and I'm going to take your $1,500 check. And he ripped it up right in front of me. He goes, wow. I would never take a dime from you. Mick's great though. I mean, I, I think the majority of the time Mick, Mick goes on the arm, but you know, like all these guys, like everyone else, they have to make a living. And, and you know, so everyone's always asking me, they're like, oh, how can this one charge? How can that one charge? Back in those days, they weren't making a lot of money. Like yeah. the 70s Yankees, yeah. the 80s Yankees, they weren't making a lot of money. And you know what? It's, it's You have to do it to bring in the guests. I mean, unless you have that special connection. And you got to understand, these guys are getting hit up every day. There are thousands of John Thiessens that ask them to come to their event. And the other guy he's friendly with is Dee Snyder. And Dee Snyder is also great in, do, in terms of fundraising with the motorcycle guys and everything else. So you'd you be amazed at people that you see on television. Behind the scenes, they do amazing stuff. They have a TV persona. They have a personality that's out there. But when you talk to them on one-on-one as a human being, I think a lot of people would be surprised the depth of what they do and who they are. Oh, Mike Francesa, John Murray from OK, he's got me, is, is one of Mike Francesa's best friends. And Mike has been involved with my foundation for probably about 17 years. And people, you know, people sometimes say, Mike, how he's moody and stuff like that. Mike is, is one of the greatest, most generous given, given people. I, I give Mike credit for really taking my foundation to the next level. He started hosting my gala way back when, and it, it, he took it from, he took it from A all the way to Z. But another, another group that's been involved with me since day one is WBAB, Cox Radio, WBOI, and Roger and JP and the whole station. I mean, it's their toy drive with me and, and they, you know, they just do so much for me that they're like my family. So I have, I have such a team behind me and everyone always says, John, you know, you do so much. Thank you. So I say, listen, it's the Long Island community. I've always, I've always considered my foundation a community foundation, meaning that anyone can walk in off the street and if there's a child sick in the community or, or, you know, an officer is sick from 9-11 issue and stuff, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll sit with them and I'll run the whole event. My door's open for anyone on Long Island. And everyone says, you know, you, you, you collect 80,000 toys during your holiday tour Jeff, can't you give out to other states? Can't you give out to other countries? And I just always feel like it's, you know, we have to take care of our own first. And and I would love to be able to do that. But there's so much need on Long Island in every community and people don't realize it. 
Well, here's my wish for you, because this podcast is going to go everywhere. So I hope you get feedback from other states, other areas, other regions. They're going to reach out to you and say, John, we heard what you do. Can you give us a blueprint? Because then you're expanding your mission. And I think that's what it's all about, to reach beyond the Long Island community, the metro New York community, and have somebody call from Seattle, Washington, saying, John, I heard this. Can you please help me? Because I believe in what you're doing. Can you help me get started? So here's what I want you to do, because I want you to give your contact information out so people can reach out to you. Now, I learned this in radio. Don't say it once. Say it twice so it'll sink into people if they haven't heard it the first time. I've learned that a long time ago, especially with my Long Island accent. <laughs> so it's John Thiessen Children's Foundation, J-O-H-N-T-H-E-I-S-S-E-N, Children's Foundation. Website is www. Dot jtcf.org, www.jtcf.org, 516-679-TOYS. All right, we got five minutes to go. I do know that your daughter is a horse person. So do you now have a, what I would call, and correct me if it's not the correct terminology, do you have a service pony? We do. We have a therapy pony. So my daughter's first pony, she started riding at six years old, surf. Um, I found the love to surf. And I, the next thing I knew back when she was riding, she's 12 now, then I found myself on stressful days hanging out with surf, walking surf like you would a golden retriever. And <laughs> I said to myself, I said, I would love surf to be a therapy pony. So sure enough, when the, when we left the barn, the owner wouldn't sell it to, to me at that time. But a couple of years later, I got her to sell surf. And now we have started last year a Surf's Up for Kids program. I'll tell you one story, Larry. We had an eight-year-old boy, Asher, very limited uh, autism, non, non-verbal. I mean, he would say one or two words, his mom would say. So she called us up and she said, I would love to have my Asher, who's eight years old, come and, and spend time with spend time with surf. And I don't know how he's going to react, but but you know we'll, we'll see. So he came, and within a half hour of being with Surf, from grooming to putting him on Surf's back and giving him a little pony ride, you know, he started giving Surf commands like "giddy up" and "go Surf." And now he says ten different things related to Surf. Surf Surf's up for kids is a great program. We have him in Melville, New York, and it's open to kids. And he's a wonderful pony. John, I think we'll end on that with the wonderful pony. That's been John Thiessen. I'm Larry Davidson. You listen to The Artful Periscope, where we explore the new craft of storytelling. After the break, Susan Isaacs. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. Maureen Corrigan, NPR's, from NPR's Fresh Air, wrote, I can't think of no other novelist, popular or highbrow, who consistently celebrates female gutsiness, brains, and sexuality. She's the Jane Austen with a schmear. Uh, welcome, Susan Isaacs, whose new book is called Takes One to No One. Hi, Susan. Hi, great to be here again. Your writing style fascinates me, and, I, and I'll tell you why, and agree or disagree, but the book, the way you let the book breathe, kind of reminds, in, in the initial stage, kind of reminds me of an old black and white movie. A lot of dialogue, less frantic pacing, story just breathes. And then somewhere later on the book, 
it kind of shifts and becomes full-blown color with, and it goes from a slow boil to a full throttle psychological thriller. Do you agree or disagree with my interpretation of, of the narrative? <laughs> I don't know. That could be. I'm not going to disagree. All right. Because so, I like it. I like it. So when you sit down and start to think about how you're going to put the narrative together, what is your thought process? My thought process is first the character comes to me, which has always been the case, except in this one, except in takes one to no one. But generally in uh, everything from compromising positions to magic hour, which had a male narrator, um, on and on, the, the character comes to me and essentially says, write my story. And write this story that, um, write this significant part of my life. And I start by making an outline, um, just because it takes away the fear of where am I going to wind up? At least I know I'm going to wind up somewhere. And in making the outline, what I'm really doing is developing the structure of the book, the book. And I make up a list of characters. And again, with the outline, new people start to, to move in. Okay. Um, so, uh, and then I can't avoid it. Eventually I have to start to write. I, w I went back to some, one of your older books. I think it's really important for me to do what I do, to kind of look back to see where you were in the past and, where, and the arc of your writing career. And I went back to the acknowledgments of red, white, and blue. And this is what you said in the acknowledgments. Mm -hmm. You said, on occasion, a novelist may feel like a minor god fashioning her own universe. What did you mean by that? Um, I, meant, I meant that god with a small g because you're doing everything. You're creating, you're creating the world. It may be, bear a very strong resemblance to this one or not at all. You're um, you're creating the the geography, the characters. You're putting up the wallpaper, and you're giving the characters their their morality, their personalities, their intellects. So you really are God with a small G. So give us a little bit of an overview of the new book, Take, yeah. Takes One to No One. You don't have to give too much stuff away because you want people to read the book. But um, right. it's, 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 it has stayed with me since I finished reading it because of a lot of things that you do, which we'll explore. But just give us a kind of a general overview. The general overview is uh, Corey Geller, Queens College graduate, um, majored in uh, Middle Eastern studies. So she speaks Arabic, um, and um, then 9-11 happens. She joins the FBI, um, and after, you know, a number of years, she's burnt out. She's on the joint anti-terrorism squad, and she's, she's really 
had it. And at the same time, she meets a lovely man, um, a widower, marries him, adopts his daughter, and wants to be a good mother to this to this girl and decides it's time to quit. It's time to have a normal life, which is what she always longed for. And so she she um, lives on Long Island, beautiful house uh, designed by the first wife. Right. And um, she's she's somewhat uncomfortable. Um, it's um, she hasn't found her niche yet, and um, she's trying awfully hard. She's working as a book scout for some literary agencies, um, trying to find books written in Arabic that can be um, translated and, and do well in the English-speaking market. So it's a job. She's using her language skills, and um, every week she meets with a group of freelancers, people who work from home, and um, she did it because she said, well, maybe I'll, you know, find somebody uh, with whom I'm simpatico. Um, she doesn't, and she she comes to dread it, but she goes, and during the time she's there, she starts to focus in on one guy, and not because he's cute. She focuses in on one guy because he seems exceedingly bland. Um, he's a packaging designer, but he he you know, his own package isn't particularly appealing or not unappealing. Um, but there's something wrong with him. And she starts to feel, she, Corey, who's living a life where she's hiding her connection with the FBI because she still does contract work with right, him. Right. Uh, and she starts to think, Maybe this guy is hiding something also. And, um, or maybe she's just trying to whip up some excitement in a life or new life that's not exactly a major thrill. And um, eventually she decides to investigate. And the only thing else I'll add, because on the theory that She's hiding something. Maybe he is too. Maybe it takes one to know one. And she enlists her dad, who's a, a former NYPD detective, retired, and um, starts to examine this guy's life, a guy named Pete. She examines Pete, the packaging designer's life, to see could there be, could I be right? And if there's something wrong with him, what is it? 
Well, is it fair to say, because in, in the early scenes, I call ladies who lunch, but it's not ladies, it's men and women. And it's, men not, and women. it's not the Algonquin Round Table or Dorothy Parker. So you made me kind of laugh because you have a reputation for a unique sense of humor, just a sense of humor in general. So that's my first thought. <laughs> it's not ladies who lunch, but just it seems like, and you mentioned Pete Delaney, and we won't go into depth, but he's a very important part of the narrative, that she's yeah. looking for something. She's not satisfied. And she, and she's almost like feeling, well, I'm kind of happy in my new life. This is kind of what I wanted, but I'm kind of compromising and not comfortable with the aspect of compromising part of my life and bearing a really important part of my life. Would that be an accurate assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. The one thing she's missing is adventure and maybe, okay, maybe there's a second thing too. It's a sense of purpose. When she was in the FBI, she she was doing something. She was working for our country. She she felt important. Now, you know, it's it's very interesting to read Arabic science fiction, and it's it's nice to help writers all over the world. But it doesn't mean terribly much to her, and she's used to a life full of not only meaning, but adventure. You know, I am a huge fan of, of crime fiction. Wherever I can, I'll read a crime fiction books because Ian Rankin said, if you want to know about a country, an area, a region, a locality, right. read its crime fiction. So do you believe that crime fiction is a way for a writer to challenge the powers that be in terms of injustice? Yeah, well, that was that's what, Corey says um, about a lot of modern Arabic fiction that it's it's a way to criticize the powers that be, and very often she was talking about Egypt in that sense, in a country where you kind of have to watch it before you um, you know before you protest too loud. But I think that's a way of challenging everything. Writing crime fiction, you're challenging unfairness, you're challenging criminality, and you're trying to set the world back into balance. Part of this book is the scales of justice go out of whack. And what the detective, whether it's a cop, whether it's a PI, whether it's a, an ex-FBI agent or a housewife, whoever goes on the hunt is trying to bring, bring balance back into the world. My guest is Susan Isaacs. Her new book is called Takes One to No One. I'm kind of going to dip into your personal life. If, where, where you, if you're not comfortable, just tell me. But you are married to a prominent attorney. And I'm pulling out a, an observation from Josh Geller, who's married to Corey. And he says, the law says marriage is a legal union of a couple, a spouses, and it defines its basic terms. But even the best of marriages is an incredibly adaptable contract that's constantly being renegotiated for life changes. That's a really interesting observation. You, it comes from your character, but you wrote it. How much right. are you pulling from your personal life, or how much is you think this is what the character feels? Well, it, it, it's, um, I, gave, I gave it to him, but it's really what I believe. Because, look, I mean, I've been married many, many, many years. In fact, many decades. <laughs> and... Where I started off, which was I was um, an editor at Seventeen magazine, uh, writing advice to the lovelorn, 
and occasional articles like how to write a letter to a boy. Were you good at and, it? Yeah, <laughs> I was good at it. You know, I and I was also young enough and close enough to those heartfelt letters. I see him in the hall and I want to say hi, but I don't know how to approach him. I, I got all that. But on the other hand, then it changed. The marriage changed a little bit when he was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District and coming home crazy hours. I went uh, and volunteered for a political campaign for mayoral primary. And they said, oh, you're a writer. Why don't you be his speechwriter? He knew, needs a speechwriter. And I said, well, you know, I'm writing how to write a letter to a boy. This is not what what we need here. And uh, they said, no, 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 you'll, you'll be fine. Well, because I could write a simple declarative sentence. That's why it was fine. And what do you know? Um, so suddenly I had different hours. I was meeting different people. I was sitting in on, um, you know, conferences with the candidate and a couple of advisors. And I did, I was developing more savvy. I mean, my husband had a lot of savvy already. I mean, he was, you know, he was trying cases. And I think some people, and especially men, are naturally born to understand how the world works. Women, not so much. And you only have a sense of part of the world when you're writing for magazine like 17 that was focusing in those days back on, you know, decorating your room with paper carnations. <laughs> I became more savvy. Things change. I had kids. I wanted to write. I wanted to go back to work. Couldn't get a, a three day a week job. So I had been reading too many novels. I especially, I've been reading too many mysteries. And, you know, at some point when you're reading mystery after mystery, God bless the poor Washington library. You become a little deranged or taken up with the idea. You say, I think I can do that. And the character came to me for my first novel. I started to write. Well, the first novel was a compromising positions, was a big success. And it got a big paperback sale, a movie sale, and it was translated into 30 languages. And so I went from, you know, making maybe $300 a year or something, I don't know what, whatever it was, freelancing speeches and a couple of magazine articles to not only having a fairly sizable income, but to, to being a, a somebody. And in the marriage with some, with some guys, when the wife starts getting a lot of attention, they can't handle it. And we kept a good balance. And it's, it's always been that way. You know, we've had a couple of fights, but we never got to fisticuffs. I mean, well, that's good to hear. We, he's a guy who likes smart women. And he likes women to do something, but but he's also, you know, he was getting ribbed by the other prosecutors and some of the FBI agent, you know, oh, do I have to call you um, Mr. Isaacs now that your wife is? And he said, that's fine. He was very cool about it. All right. So, so, you, so you, you mentioned the FBI, and, I, and I'll tell you why yeah. I'm, going, I'm going to follow up on that, because the FBI today and the intelligence communities and the law enforcement communities are under attack. And in your right. book, 
you have a she's working with an FBI agent and you give it a better portrait, a more positive portrait of what the FBI does. So I think that's an important part of the book to give us a different point of view. Right. Well, first of all, I've known some FBI special agents. For another one of my books, Red, White, and Blue, I went down to Washington and I got to interview not only um, some of the agents, and in that time, that book was about domestic terrorism. So I interviewed agents involved in that. I interviewed um, a shrink from Quantico. It was an absolutely riveting time. And what I found was that they were smart. They worked hard. They were decent. I don't think they, they're meant to be worshipped. I think they certainly, their past is not clean and, and their behavior has not been perfect, including through the Hillary investigation. Right. Um, you know, they make mistakes. You know, someone didn't question uh, around 9-11 why a guy um, wanted to fly, but he didn't care about learning to land. So they're, they're a flawed organization, but they're a good organization. And overall, they do what they have to do, which is enforce the law. And some of them are mediocre, and some of them are noble and brave and extraordinary. But it works. It's an, it's an organization that works, and it protects us. The beauty of books for me is you could have 100 different readers come out with 100 different versions of one book. And I took another thing away from your book that I had to think about. You don't have to give too much away, but I would pose this question to you in terms of being also a psychological thriller. Can a hitman also be a serial killer or can hitman just be a cold-blooded businessman? You want to amplify and follow up on that? Uh, yeah, I don't think he's a serial killer. He has no rituals. He has no MO. He's not compelled to do it. What he does is he makes, he's an extraordinary shot. He makes a business decision to hire himself out. And after he lost his job in 2008, which interestingly is what almost everyone except Corey in that lunch group lost their jobs during the Great Recession. But he found a, a way of, of earning a living while having this covered job as a packaging designer. What he is is a sociopath. He can be very articulate. He can justify it. But of course, he's also very good at hiding it. He's, he's an intelligent man who has really no emotion. I'm going to pose one last question to you. By the way, my guest is Susan Isaacs, and the new book is called Takes One to No One. I did an interview with uh, Min Jin Lee, who wrote Pachinko, which is a very, very popular book. And she said something really interesting, and I'm curious for your reaction. She said, I place great demands on myself. Therefore, I expect the writer to have great demands, putting the time in, on themselves, putting the time in to read the book. So what demands do you place on yourself when you sit down to write a book, and do you have demands for your readers? No, I don't have demands for my readers, you know, because because there's no one reader. Some person in suburban Detroit, is it my Aunt Sarah's sister? Is it a reader who's going through the Bulgarian edition? There, there is no one reader, so how can I demand other than they've bought the book? You know, I hope they read it, hope they enjoy it. But of myself, yeah, I have a lot of demands. 
because I'm writing the book for myself. Although I love my readers after the fact, I don't think of them as I'm writing because I'm the person I'm writing the book for. That is fascinating. I'll tell you why. Pete Hamill said, and I love Pete Hamill as a writer and as a journalist oh, and as, human, as a human being, beyond everything else, just as a human being. And I've sat down with him and, and I'm blessed to be in his presence. That he said, I write what I want to read. And I think that you just explain it in, in your own way. You, you write what you want to read. Right, exactly. I, I, write, I write the book that I most want to read and nobody else had the kindness to write it for me. Well said. The book is Take One to No One. My guest has been Susan Isaacs. I also want to thank John Thiessen. I'm Larry Davidson, and we'll see you next time. Metaphorically speaking, anyway, we'll see you next time. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She brought.